Rembrandt von Rijn was one of the greatest artists who ever lived. He was born exactly 400 years ago. Yet to this day, there are people whose lives are affected by his work. In the coming half hour, you can listen to a Radio Netherlands worldwide presentation about Rembrandt's legacy in the 21st century. The program is presented by Marijke van der Meer. Hundreds of years after he lived, Rembrandt continues to affect the passions and professions of people alive today. People who study his work, who try to emulate it, who trade in his paintings and etchings, and who keep the link alive between the artist and his modern public. We present Copyists, Collectors and Curators, Rembrandt's 21st Century Heirs. There are no easy paintings to copy, especially not with Rembrandt. I know for myself I'm, I'm a fairly good painter, but well, he's well, a genius. You know, everything that came out of his fingers just turned into gold. René Clarenbeek is a Dutch painter in his early 40s who has decided to spend 10 years making copies of Rembrandt paintings. He calls this the Rembrandt's Pupil Project. I've declared myself a student, a pupil of the master, and I'm trying to do the things that pupils did in his time. Part of that is making copies of the works of the master. So I'm visiting museums, putting up my easel there, and then working in the old museum tradition, which almost is gone. But it's the most exciting uh, way to, to study something and to, to try to find out how the old masters did it. René Clarenbeck has painted copies of Rembrandt's in Berlin, The Hague, and southern France. I spoke with him in the very room where the master himself worked, the reconstructed studio in the house where Rembrandt lived in the 1640s and 50s, and which is now the Rembrandt House Museum in Amsterdam. Clarenbeck was copying a small study in oils of an old man. It's been painted very fast. So a model was sitting on a chair and the light was coming from behind and Rembrandt just wanted to make a study of how the light goes over the man and over his, the cap on his head, the hair, his ear. Rembrandt and his pupils as well, they had models for things like this. So it's, it's a small study that he did probably around 1660. And uh, what I'm doing here is making uh, on the same kind of wood, oak wood, oak wood panels. Um, to make four variations on this painting. So I don't want to make a clone of the painting because there's already one original, I have two. But I'm doing just like his pupils were told to do, using the original and using Rembrandt's painting language to come to a new painting that looks like a Rembrandt, that is his language, but in a way is also a new painting. Well, uh, given uh, the fact that you're making your own freer version of the Rembrandt painting that's hanging here on the wall, why is it so important to you to work in front of the very original painting? Well, that's the difference between talking about an ice cream and eating one. You know, the, the painting is, the original tells you so much more than even the best reproduction can. Because 
with the lights, I can just look at the lights which is coming over the panel. I can see how thick the paint is, what it might be under it, where the scratches are, what the panel as a, as a basement structure is doing in the, in the painting. There's so much more that you can see from reality than, of course, from reproduction. So I'm eating ice cream all week here. Maybe I should let you get to work before these paints dry. You've gone through a lot of trouble to mix them from the original recipes for pigments and oil. You have a palette here of uh, a range of colors from white to ochre, reds, browns. Yeah, that's basically what Ebrot had. He worked with uh, lead white, uh, yellow ochre, red vermilion, red sienna, uh, raw amber, burnt amber, castle earth and bone black. That's basically his palette. Sometimes he used a bit of blue, but not that much. So all of the paintings were made with this very limited palette. And you work very much uh, eye to hand. You use no technical aids for reproducing painting. No, this is just, I'm just doing, trying to do the same thing as I think that he did. But of course the big difference is that Rembrandt did not copy a painting. He was looking at an old man who was sitting there and probably not sitting still, maybe he was half falling asleep or whatever, but the man was sitting there, the light was coming in. The light of course was changing, it was not artificial light, it was daylight coming in. So he was also painting against the time. He had to be very fast, hoping that the man would sit still and trying to catch what he wanted to catch. And that's, that's a very big difference of course. I'm copying his brush and he was copying reality. What's it like for you to be painting in this room, knowing that this is exactly where your master Rembrandt worked? Well, this of course is sac sacred ground for me. Um, maybe the ultimate wet dream for a, a, a Rembrandt uh, adept. While many of us would be delighted to own a copy of a Rembrandt or even a good reproduction, only the privileged few can own the real thing. Our family crest is three stars with six points. And I think the six points of the star made the name Six. And Jan Six became Lord Mayor of Amsterdam. Jan Six number two was 32 years Lord Mayor of Amsterdam. And Jan Six number three was Lord Mayor of Amsterdam. My wife and I, we made Jan Six number 11, so we did our best, and the family goes on. Baron Jan Six, ninth Lord of Hillegom, is a direct descendant of one of Rembrandt's most important patrons, Jan Six. In the Golden Age, the Six family were prominent Amsterdam patricians, active in the city's business, political, and cultural life. Rembrandt's painting of Jan Six is considered to be one of the best portraits of the 17th century, and his etching of Jan Six as a young man reading by a window is considered to be one of the finest etchings of all times. Many of these Rembrandts are still in the family's possession. Jan Six had an album Amicorum. It's a sort of guest book for special friends. And Rembrandt made two drawings in the book. And one drawing, Homer reciting his verses, was underlined by the sentence Rembrandt to Jan Six. He writes Jan Six and not Burgermaster Six or uh, Mr. Six or whatever. And uh, we know also there were so many things done. Jan Six made a play and Rembrandt made the title page. Rembrandt came to the country house of Jan Six, which is 
archived. The the Rembrandts that were painted uh, and and etched for your forefathers have remained in your family all these generations. Can you tell what some of the best and most important works are in the collection? Well, the thing that we still have those portraits, that's a remarkable thing. There was only one descendant. Sometimes there were more descendants, but they didn't marry or didn't have children. And finally, in around uh, 1920, my great-grandfather had six children. From then on, it was a booming business to have children in the family. But he realized that this will be split up by uh, paying inheritance tax. So he put it in a foundation in 1922, being actually the first art foundation in the world to protect art and not to pay inheritance tax. And that's why we still have so many things. Uh, yes, because the Rembrandts were flying out of the country at that time, and uh, I believe at the end of the 19th century there were only about eight or nine of them in all of uh, the Netherlands. Uh, is your family collection from the, from the 17th century on more or less intact, or have you at some point lost some Rembrandts or sold some? Have any ever been destroyed? And did you also buy Rembrandts back into the collection or add Rembrandts uh, over the years? Uh, Jan Six made his grand tour to Italy in 1640, the Jan Six painted by Rembrandt. In Rembrandt he saw those Italian painters, he bought a huge amount of paintings. And in fact when he died in 1700, his auction was in 1702. And there were uh, famous Italian paintings and they were sold on behalf of uh, the family. And many of the things were bought back by his son, by uh, other children and whatever. Mm. And uh, we raised in the family collection during all those centuries, also by marrying other families, mm-hmm. other paintings. And uh, since uh, when we created the foundation in 1922, we had to pay off a nephew and his wife and his child. Mm-hmm. And we had to pay taxes in those days. You have to do it to transfer it from your own property to a, f- a foundation property. And we sold c- about 95 paintings, among them the Street of Vermeer, the Milkmaid, the oyster eater of Jan Steen, the wedding of Jan Steen, the letter of Ter Borg, just to, to name a few. The Six family country estate is currently being restored and the paintings are either in storage or on loan to exhibitions. Normally, the family allows 5,000 visitors a year to view the masterpieces and only by introduction. The, the, the icons of the collection, usually we don't lend them. If you empty the walls there, mm-hmm. you have blanco spaces because you can't put other paintings which has no relation to the family. Mm-hmm. And then our visitors would say, where is Jan Six of Rembrandt? Where is Anna Wiemer or Franz Halt painting or Potter painting mm-hmm. or Albert Kuyp? So these are the icons which we keep still in the house. And the other things we lend to museums uh, quite often. What's it like for you living, you grew up with Rembrandts on the walls and you still live with them, do you ever not notice them? No, because uh, I won't say I, I, I meet them every day, but uh, four, four times a week, yes. 25 years I live in the house now, and every week four times I visit the paintings, look at them and see them. And then you realize suddenly that some ancestors are nice, not the paintings. Some paintings are nice, and some paintings are boring after years. Really? Your eyes go over it to the next beautiful thing. And do you have a favorite? Yeah, well, Jan Six, I mean, his hands are great. Uh, well, sometimes there's an old lady in the family, a great, great, great grandmother, mm-hmm. and then I think she tells me something. 
you realize that uh, you you do what you should do. I mean, you're born that way. You have to take care of it. And when you look at uh, Jan Six's face or the face of Anna Weimer, do you ever see family resemblance, uh, similarities to cousins or um, uncles or anyone else in the family? Sometimes you do. But most of the times uh, you realize that there are also wives added to the family and they change faces. I mean, that fresh blood is absolutely important for a family line. And are the Rembrandts the most important works in your collection? Yes, of course. I mean, uh, not only uh, looking at the value, but also it is so fantastically painted. One of the most valuable works in the Six collection is not a painting, but a Rembrandt print showing Jan Six as a young man reading by a window. It's considered to be one of the finest etchings of all times. At this year's Tefaf, the prestigious European Fine Arts Fair in Maastricht, I spoke with one of the most renowned galleries specialized in the sale of Rembrandt's graphic works. We are the gallery Helmut H. Rumbler from Frankfurt in Germany, and we are specializing in Rembrandt prints, and our business is now 35 years old, and we are very proud to show here at the Tefaf a very nice and a very fine selection of very, very rare and exceptional fine Rembrandt prints. I see you have here, for example, an etching of the Three Crosses, which is a real uh, masterpiece of Rembrandt's. May I ask uh, what your asking price is? No, I can't tell you the asking price because it's sold. Oh! Yes! <laughs> you sold it. Yes. May I ask uh, if you sold it to a private collector or to a museum? We sold it to a private collection. A private collection. And how is the market for Rembrandt prints? Of course, it's, it's much more accessible than the, the market of paintings. Uh, I think the market for Rembrandt uh, engraving and etchings are very, very strong now. Maybe for the 400th anniversary of Rembrandt, but also we have collectors who are now very, very knowledgeable and they know how good an impression is and uh, how early an uh, impression is and so on. So you're finding that the buyers are developing a better sense and skill, a better eye for these things? Yes, of course, uh, but I think it's nice for the buyers that they see so lot of Rembrandt prints so they, that they could choose what they really like. They have to pay let's say more for an extraordinary fine print, but uh, you ha have to decide what you really want. I think the nice thing is with Rembrandt's, uh, most of our people are very, very ser serious people. And we have not so much investors, like in the modern field. And uh, Rembrandt, uh, the prices are not uh, going up and up and up, but we have a very, very serious market. And do you know why people buy Rembrandt etchings as opposed to others? Is there a particular reason or a, or a certain trend? I think it makes you proud if you can say, okay, I have an original Rembrandt at home. And if you are from the Netherlands, it makes you double proud because it's your f most, most famous artist ever 
in the Netherlands, yeah. also for museums. You see, in the past three years, they do very, very fine exhibitions of Rembrandt in Boston, in Chicago, in Frankfurt, all over the world. And I think this, uh, a lot of people know about Rembrandt, and maybe therefore it's nice for them to acquire one. Now, in the media, quite a lot of fuss is made about the paintings on sale. For example, there are two Rembrandt paintings on sale here at the European Fine Arts Fair. But some people would say that Rembrandt was one of the greatest etchers in the world as well. In fact, some say he's a better etcher than a painter. Do you think it's fair that there's so much attention for the paintings and uh, much less attention for the engravings, drawings and uh, etchings? Uh, in my opinion, uh, the nicest thing is that Rembrandt could do everything. He is a great painter, he is a great drawer, also his drawings are wonderful, and he is a great, great etcher. And the only one you could compare was him, maybe, is Albrecht Dürer in Germany. And uh, uh, do you have any personal, uh, a personal attachment to Rembrandt yourself? Is there any particular work of art that you have a particular admiration for and that you would like to own yourself or sell or whatever? What I really love is uh, the small self-portrait by him. Ah, this one, the yeah. small one. Yeah. Because I think in his self-portrait he is so, he speaks with you. And, uh, and I think it's wonderful, these very, very tiny ones. And if you enlarge them, they have so much feeling and, and you are so close to him. The price of this postage stamp-sized etched self-portrait of the young Rembrandt? About 75,000 euros. A Rembrandt painting will set you back tens of millions. Few art dealers manage to get their hands on Rembrandt's paintings, for most of them are no longer in private hands. Salandro Riley Galleries of New York recently brought a Rembrandt painting onto the market. It was one of the stars of the prestigious European Fine Arts Fair in Maastricht, where I spoke with the gallery's executive vice president, Andrew Butterfield. The painting represents St. James the Major, the Apostle and Evangelist. It was painted in 1661. It is part of a group of pictures of the Evangelists and Apostles that he painted in the late 1650s and early 1660s. And the core of this group is this painting plus three other pictures, a St. Matthew in the Louvre, a St. Bartholomew in the Getty, and a St. Simon in Kunsthaus in Zurich. This is the last painting by Rembrandt from the 1660s in private hands. Given the current art market, do you think it's likely it will be bought by uh, a museum or a private collector? Well, private collectors have the advantage of uh, typically being uh, having more resources immediately available to them than an institution, uh, because despite the great wealth of some institutions, normally their funds are earmarked in one way or another. However, the kinds of private individuals who buy a work of this importance and rarity tend to be closely tied to institutions. They often are on the board of an institution or major donors to museums, and they often also have uh, intellectual ties to museums in the sense that the, they know the director and the top curators uh, on a personal basis and talk to them about 
artistic and cultural matters regularly. There's been a, a clear change of mood and of attitude as far as restitution of artworks to legitimate owners to, for example, uh, murdered Jews. Uh, there has been a change in attitude towards restoring uh, artworks to the countries that they come from. Uh, for example, the return recently of the Euphronius uh, creator by the Met to Italy, and we've just here in the Netherlands recently seen the return of hundreds of paintings from yeah. the Houtsticker uh, collection. There's definitely a change of attitude. In fact, some people are saying that potential buyers have a fear of contamination today, that they want absolute solid proof of provenance of an artwork. How has that affected your work? Buyers are uh, very uh, sensitive to these issues and they do ask for complete documented provenance and they ask that uh, works be certified and warranted regarding the provenance and uh, we make every effort we possibly can to guarantee that everything is, uh, that the title has passed legitimately at every stage in its uh, modern history. But that's always no been the case. Has, have you been coming under more pressure than before? I wouldn't say that, but uh, everyone is aware of the issue and everyone pays attention to it. Now, all the Rembrandts have been he heavily scrutinized by the Rembrandt Research uh, Project. Uh, this painting, uh, how strong is its pedigree? Well, the head of the Rembrandt Research Project, uh, Professor Van Vettering, recently requested this painting for inclusion in an exhibition on Rembrandt for the Rembrandt's house in Amsterdam. Well, it may be a Rembrandt, but it must have been then made after a very, very long night. It's such a bad painting, really. It's certainly possible that Rembrandt made bad paintings, but I actually don't believe it's a Rembrandt. Peter von den Brink is curator of the city museums in Aachen, Germany, including the Sürmont Ludwig Museum, which owns a Rembrandt. I think it's quite dangerous to have the price of a painting depend on the name which is given to it, because it would mean that someone who's buying it now as a Rembrandt for $35 million may have to sell it in 20 years' time for perhaps 500,000 euros for a simple reason that's not a Rembrandt anymore. We don't know that. Um, it's difficult to, to, to look into the future, but it's certainly clear you can look into the past, and there you see that attribution change all the time. But the main thing is, is that you have to look at the quality of the painting. And the man with the golden helmet, although it may not be a Rembrandt nowadays, is a far better painting than the St. James, which is now sold as a Rembrandt for $35 million. And then you have to be careful, because buying the painting on its name puts you in a very difficult uh, situation as a collector, because to be able to save the worth of your painting, you have to bribe perhaps many people to keep it a Rembrandt. What um, do you mean bribe? Well, uh, it's pretty sure that many attributions uh, keep the price high. But this must be a very good time to sell a Rembrandt if you have one, <laughs> uh, because we are seeing a wave of re-attributions after a lot of de-attributions by the Rembrandt Research uh, yeah. Project. There's a clear trend now to re-attribute yeah. paintings. I always joke about this in saying that we have so many uh, Rembrandt exhibitions that we uh, don't have enough Rembrandts. So what's 
easier than attribute new Rembrandts again. So we have more Rembrandts for different shows. Peter van den Brink recently took part in the 9th International Congress of Code Art, an international network that brings together curators of Dutch and Flemish art. Code is quite important because it's the only working network of museum curators all over the world. We have people from as far as Russia to Havana, from Buenos Aires to Stockholm, mm -hmm. from everywhere. And we don't only have this conference every year. There's a, an email network which is really working so excellent that you're able to sell exhibitions over email. Within five seconds, you can reach every possible colleague all over the world. Every year, Code Arts members gather to discuss some of the problems and challenges of their profession. This year, of course, the subject of the Code Art Congress was Rembrandt. One thing that's worrying some curators is the threat of Rembrandt overkill. We thought it's worth asking whether there is such a thing as Rembrandt overkill. Are there going to be too many exhibitions? Will the public become tired of, you know, Rembrandt, of the great master? Or, um, you know, can't we get enough of him? Axel Rüger is the new director of the Van Gogh Museum in Amsterdam and was, until recently, the curator of Dutch painting at the National Gallery in London. We obviously lend gladly to exhibitions that are worthwhile, that are interesting, that shed new light on the artist, and also, of course, that show the artist in a new light and sometimes to a new public. On the other hand, with that many events going on, and not just in Holland, but also around the world, it is a difficult issue, and we must weigh up the advantages of uh, presenting exhibitions to our publics with the possible dangers and the jeopardy we put the works in by constantly um, lending them, traveling them around the world. Everybody wants to make an exhibition on Rembrandt, especially because um, money pours in and money is easily spent on exhibitions like that. So you tend to think there's going to be an overkill, and that's true. There is an overkill. There is already an overkill. Yes, everybody wants a piece of the pie, so what you get is aspects of Rembrandt's work, uh, which is then going to be a large, blown up, so to speak. And many of those are clearly marketing exhibitions, really meant to get in a lot of people. So um, most of the funds which are used uh, for these exhibitions, they get back uh, in the form of uh, entry entries uh, of visitors. I'm a bit alarmed by that situation, uh, and I'm not the only one. The thing is with Rembrandt, he is a, an artist who is immediately recognized. It's a very, very famous name, so any exhibition that you organize is more or less guaranteed to be successful and will bring in many visitors. And that is something that we, that museums take into consideration, and he's one of very few artists for whom that is true. And um, in that context, there is an increased pressure on organizing more and more and more Rembrandt exhibitions. The fact is that you can't eternally lend paintings. At a certain moment, there's isn't time to say stop, because the painting can't endure uh, another transport any longer. And if you have an exhibition which is really worthwhile to send a painting to, and can't get a painting because it had too much transport fatigue, the years before, well, you might say it's a shame it has been sent out too often in the past. Uh, 
And that's what I'm afraid of. I mean, the, the spiral of the amount of exhibitions taking place right now is so huge. I think the critical, the really critical question should be, and that's what it's all about, is should you bring the level of the exhibition to the audience or should you try to get the level of the audience to the exhibition? I think it is about finding the balance so that you hopefully have a program with more popular exhibitions and you do Rembrandt exhibitions and those allow you of course to then on other occasions do things that are either more scholarly or a bit more specialist and also I would say this always sounds as if it's negative but I think we also have a duty to introduce our audiences to less well-known artists so I think it is again the curator's choice to strike the balance between the two. Uh, The problem is that Rembrandt uh, takes away a lot of energy from other painters and uh, we had so many thousands of painters which never had an exhibition which are really worthwhile and you can make a good show of it and really attract a lot of audience as well if you market it well. That's that's the whole thing. It doesn't have to be Rembrandt all the time and uh, I think that people at the end will get fed up with Rembrandt. You've been listening to Copyists, Collectors, and Curators, Rembrandt's 21st Century Heirs. The program was presented by Marijke van der Meer and produced by Radio Netherlands Worldwide.